Hello and welcome to Oh Behave with Brian Middleton, me, the bearded behaviorist. And uh, today we're going to be talking about stimulus and stimulus class. And we have a guest today, uh, Sho Araiba. Um, Sho is a BCBAD who works in Hawaii. Um, he is from Ch- Tokyo, Japan. Uh, Sho has a YouTube channel underneath his name, so S H O. A-R-A-I-B-A, and this YouTube channel considers different psychological concepts from a behaviorist point of view. Welcome, Sho. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So today we're going to be talking about stimulus and stimulus class. Um, Should I start with the definition from uh, Cooper, uh, Heron, and Heward, or sh- would you like yeah. to start with anything? Yeah, I think we can start with the definition. And okay. I think we can talk about why these things are important. Yeah. So that the definition of stimulus is um, an energy change that affects an organism through receptor cells. Uh, This is coming from the glossary of uh, the second edition Cooper book. And stimulus class is a group of stimuli that shares specific common elements along formal. So for example, size, color, uh, temporal, um, meaning antecedent or consequent or, uh, and or functional, i.e. discriminative stimulus, or something along those lines, uh, dimensions. Yeah, I think those are very uh, technical. And uh, I think as a, you know, a person who just came into the field of ABA, or for that matter, experimental analysis of behavior too, that they are probably faced with this somehow exotic definitions to begin with. And do, did you have a hard time with those things when you, when you get inside? Um, you know, yeah, it, it, it's kind of a, a unique way of, of thinking and looking at things. And um, something that helped me to understand these ideas and concepts was to try to put it into real world uh-huh. concepts. Um, and, and being able to see it from that lens. Uh-huh. Um, uh, the unfortunate fact of the matter is, or maybe it's fortunate, I don't know, is that we don't typically talk like this. <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs> and, you know, that's a very good point because the reason why we have these definitions that we have this way of talking about it is, uh, is kind of, it, it does reflect the philosophy of behaviorism. And one of the uh, main characteristic of behaviorism is that it is a purely objective experimental branch of natural science. So yeah. that's, that's, that's a quote from Watson, who really began the movement of behaviorism. So behaviorists are really um, interested in objective uh, which means that more than two people can observe the same phenomenon and agree upon what's going on and try to understand why such thing occurs or changes. 
So when you talk about response or behavior and stimulus and environment, behaviorists are really interested in how behavior change occurs in relation to environmental change. Yeah. And that, that's it. You know, that's the most important thing for us. And that doesn't really include anything like free will or uh, personality or you know, some other concepts like love. And, and that's probably very difficult for a lot of people to um, grasp. Well, that's one of the things I love about your YouTube channel is you're, you're trying to take the behaviorist perspective and, and consider things like personality, those sorts of things. And um, it, it's really funny because there's this myth that behavior analysts don't believe in those things. Mm-hmm. And part of it is perpetuated by the lack of knowledge. Um, I'm not trying to say that people are ignorant, but rather they focus on specializing uh, which is, you know, what a lot of a lot of people do. Um, but like, I've been reading um, B.F. Skinner's uh, book um, about behaviorism, and mm-hmm. I was surprised, not like shocked, but just a little bit surprised by how much time he spent talking about internal events, thoughts, emotions, of feelings. How he um, emphasized that we need to make sure that even though we even though we're limited to the observer of one for thoughts, feelings, emotions, mm-hmm. those internal events, we still need to see those at behavior as be, as behaviors. And more importantly, we need to embrace them and accept them as being a part of who we are. Mm-hmm. And th- there's been this kind of mythology of, well, no, no, we are very set. This is how we do things. This is how it's done. Um, and, you know, we don't really worry about those things too much. And the fun thing about it is I am about a third of the way through the book. And B.F. Skinner is still in this book talking about how the way that we phrase things shapes how we view it. Uh-huh. And how yeah. we describe internal stimulus from the perspective of external experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really fascinating because it's like, okay, yeah. So the way we describe things does shape how we view it. Mm -hmm. Language is an important part of what makes us people humans um, specifically. And, uh, and so if we can shape the language just a little bit to help us consider thoughts um, or consider ideas slightly differently, that might help us understand some things, which, you know, on one hand, the teacher in me screams and goes, no, it's too complicated. And other hand, uh, another part of me goes, well, you know, we should probably consider these things from a different perspective. And I like to try to find the middle ground, which is the reason why we have this podcast, because I'm trying, I'm, I'm, I want people to be able to hear real world examples and talk to people and, and listen to people who are talking about these ideas that, that they understand uh, and, and see different perspectives. So, yeah, I think that's really a good point. And, you know, in my pod, in my uh, YouTube channel too, the difficulty for behavior analysts 
is really just is to talk about things that are very common, like love and attention, memory, and those kind of supposedly internal uh, mechanisms, which is not observable from outside. And yet still we, we do talk about those things. And so my attempt in my YouTube channel is to apply behavioristic point of view to explain those concepts so that as Skinner did, you can demystify those concepts as kind of like an independent autonomous agent who controls our body, you know? So we think like, okay, we have a, let's say, um, attention that we control. So, you know, if, if a child is uh, not focusing on the teacher's instruction, people say, oh, he, he or she lacks attention. But mm -hmm. attention is something that's inside of that child, which we really cannot observe, right? Or cannot be the cause of behavior because when we look at the child's behavior, we are actually saying, oh, because behavior is this, there is no attention. So, so that kind of a internal agent has, it's, it's very prevalent in our culture and we try not to say things like that. And that's probably why it's difficult for um, a person who just came into ABA to understand what those concepts are, the stimulus and response and stimulus class and response class. But I think the point is, well, let's look at the relationship between environment and behavior and see how behavior is changed by the environment. And, and so to that, to that point, um, stimulus is basically something, uh, some sort of stimulation that the organism, in this case, we're talking about people, observes. Uh, and then depending on how that stimulus is classified determines the stimulus class. So mm -hmm. for example, somebody snapping their fingers uh -huh. would be a, a stimulus. Um, maybe they're snapping their fingers to get someone's attention. Now I'm half deaf. And if someone were to snap their fingers in a crowded room, I would not perceive that uh -huh. okay, more likely okay. than not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So therefore that would not count as a stimulus there. They may be emitting a behavior, <laughs> uh -huh. but if I don't perceive it, it doesn't count as a stimulus for me because right, right. I'm not perceiving it. Likewise, um, uh, light for, uh, those blind fish that live in caves, uh, -huh. uh uh, that light would not count as a stimulus um, because they have no receptor cells to perceive them. Um, right. And another example I like to talk about is uh, social behaviors. And mm -hmm. me, um, I am autistic. Uh, and early on, I did not have the discrimination ability to be able to discriminate 
certain types of social stimuli, not all of them, but certain types. And then as I learned how to discriminate between different social stimuli, um, I began to start to generalize the ideas and be able to perceive them to the point now that I'm regularly told uh, when the topic mm-hmm. of me being autistic comes up mm-hmm. that I don't look autistic. Uh, and my response is initially, thank you, even though it's kind of a backhanded compliment. Uh, <laughs> weird thing there. Uh, but, um, I, instead of getting offended, because getting offended is just going to reduce the probability of them listening, I go, oh, I appreciate you telling me that. And, and then I follow up with saying something along the lines of, well, this is actually uh, proof that behavior is something that can be learned. I learned how to discriminate between different social stimuli. Mm-hmm. And now I can walk into a room and perceive um, social stimuli that others would otherwise not have seen who are either autistic or maybe in some cases, I, I would say that I'm uh, in not all cases, but in some cases I'm actually a little bit more adept at picking up on certain social cues than somebody who's on the neurological mean Mm -hmm. um, also known as uh, neuros um, typical uh, because I have learned how to um, discriminate to a point where I am, aware of it more. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's, yeah. that's an example of stimulus and, uh, and of course, stimulus class can be classified based off of mm-hmm. what the behavior looks like, um, you know, or sorry, not, not the behavior, what the stimulus looks like. So it could be color, sound, that sort of thing, or, uh, it could even be classed under <clears throat> what its function is. How does it, where does it land in relation to other, um, contingencies. Um, so antecedent would be one stimulus class, a consequent would be another stimulus class, for example. Yeah. I think, you know, your example is really, uh, great. You know, I have, uh, you know, I'm Japanese and, uh, for me, when I came to the United States, English was really just bunch of sounds for me, you know, I could not, I could not really hear it as a language, you know, just, I just heard it as um sound, you know, and I mean sound that I hear is still still a stimulus, but those are meaningless bunch of gibberish to me in the beginning, and like throughout the time i got to i got to hear <clears throat> sorry, I got to hear as an English and started making sense to me through conditioning so yeah, as as long as you can detect a sound or light or some other types of uh, physical change in the environment, those stimuli can change the way uh, it functions. And okay. yeah, and uh, talking about the stimulus class, I think it's it's good to talk about. Um, uh, variability in for that matter, because the the originally why Skinner introduced the term class is because he was concerned with the variability in response and stimulus. So what that means is that so I'm in Hawaii and uh, you know a lot of us uh, surf here. 
And uh, so, you know, if you think about surfing, surfing is to, you know, there is a wave and uh, we take a wave with a surfboard, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so if you think about that, surfing as a behavior, wave is a stimulus. So the wave comes, we will make a response, which is to paddle and ride a surf. Now, if you do, if you just look at one occasion of that, it's just one wave, which is a stimulus and taking a surf is a response. But you, you know, of course you do it multiple times. And so there are multiple waves and multiple opportunities to ride. And what's, what the difficulty of saying that uh, wave is a wave and surf is a sur- surfing is a surfing is that every single wave is a different wave, even though you are on the same spot. So wave sometimes is bigger, sometimes smaller, sometimes faster, sometimes slower, sometimes uh, it has a weird shape. But so there is a variability in wave. Okay. And but we can classify all those waves as a stimulus class. So wave is a wave. And you know, it's, I'm glad you bring that up because um, one of the areas of behavior analysis that most people don't know about that is is very influential in our society is uh, behavior analysis in sports. Um, oh yeah, it's it. There was a UFC fight uh, last month, uh, the January twenty twenty, where um, there was a behavior analyst who was uh, acknowledged as being uh, a, a, a contributor to the success of one of the the fighters. Really? Um, wow. Yeah. And oh, that's, that's amazing. That that's pretty neat because you know that. Yes, it it seems from from strictly from a perspective of of um, by the way the name of that behavior analyst sorry is uh, Paul Gloves, um, but uh, so uh, the interesting thing about this is even though we're speaking about things like behaviors and it seems kind of peculiar and how our language is being. Uh, shaped to address the behavior, uh, and it seems almost a little bit unnatural or stilted, by taking that approach, it allows us to differentiate stimulus to a level where instead of being like, oh, man, ah, that just happened to me, and this is chance, uh-huh. it, it now takes that, that randomness um, due to perception more than anything else uh, out of the equation, and we can start actually asking objective questions and and then learning how to recognize different stimuli in our environment and then as we learn to recognize different stimuli we can shape um, our behavior in response to that stimuli and um, that can be in the form of knowing what a wave looks like um, that would be more beneficial to ride uh, versus a wave that isn't it would be able to differentiate and see the movement of water. Um, and uh, I know that the Polynesian and Micronesian peoples 
are very skilled at, uh, at sailing and uh, being out on the water. And they have the capacity to see things because they've learned how to recognize that stimuli that somebody who is not from that culture would not see. Yeah, it's it's amazing how you know um, when I you know I just when I just came to Hawaii like two years ago and and started surfing, and you can see the local people like you know uh, even like a three years old is surfing way better than I am, <laughs> and they're like so tiny but they're catching like a huge wave that I could never dream to catch, and I'm like wow, those you know like really uh amazing how they are in terms of water and that's pretty fantastic yeah and i think so so one of one one more thing that i wanted to say is um so so there are different ways to classify uh stimuli like you just said you know waves there are good waves and bad waves there are um waves that you can ride and waves that you cannot ride and so class is really very flexible in in that sense so you can consider every wave as a wave uh in itself like a class of waves or you Mm -hmm. can classify uh one type of waves as a rideable wave and another another class as a unrideable wave so those are actually pretty flexible in in its uh classification that's a pretty flexible tool. Um, with that, I want to take a quick moment to pause uh, for a word from our sponsors. Okay, thank you for waiting, folks, and welcome back. Uh, all right, well, is there anything else that uh, you wanted to talk about with relation to um, Stimulus and Stimulus Class Show? Um, I think... Well, so response is also probably, uh, you know, uh, you guys talked about response and response class um, with yeah. uh, uh, Rick. Uh, yeah. And uh, so that also, you know, it's, it's good to talk about the variability there as well because responses are also variable, you know, which is kind of interesting because it's really hard to make a same exact movement over and over again, even as an athlete. So for example, if you are a gymnastician who is just, you know, at Olympic game, for example, you practice and practice and practice and do the exact same movement over and over and over, over. But, for some reason, you cannot always do exactly the same. And that's variability in in response. And for some reason, there is really nothing we can do about that. And at the same time, that variability is something beneficial when it comes yeah. to conditioning. So it's, yeah, it's, it's highly beneficial when it comes to conditioning. And it, it also, um, from a strictly societal perspective, it, it, it's pretty amazing too, because then it, it, it in, 
encourages individuality, uh, even though maybe there's some commonality between. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, in terms of sports or whatever that we do, let's say that we, uh, you know, if you have an old car, which where you have to insert your key and then turn to uh, start the engine, you know, if you have mm-hmm. that kind of car, then once in a while, you somehow are not able to insert the key to that uh, to the hole uh, the first try. Mm-hmm. And that's a very, very, you know, you do that all the time, but for some reason you miss it once in a while. And that's uh, that's a variability, you know. <laughs> you have it right there. You know, my dad used to talk like, you know, we are we are Japanese and we use chopsticks. And uh, once in a while, he misses. You know, he drops the food with the fork with the chopsticks, and he makes a joke and saying like, "Hey, I've been practicing chopsticks for for the late, you know for the last fifty years, and I'm still somehow not able to." <laughs> perfection it, it. <laughs> and that's a joke you know i like and uh, that kind of reflects on variability in behavior so yeah that variability is is important to understand and uh that actually i, I think is one of the things that uh helps to define behavior uh for versus uh the behavior of a living organism versus the behavior of a a machine, which yeah. from behavior analytic perspectives, that actually doesn't fall under behavior, even though common uh, common parlance of words is to say, well, <clears throat> my car is behaving strangely when there's a knocking noise or a, a squeal uh-huh. or a whine or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, with machines, the thing about them is that they're behaving using that word in the common parlance term the way that they are, because that's how they are structured. Um, you know, the, the belt is spinning along the wheel, the piston is pumping and moving along its axis and doing all those things. The spark plug ignites exploding the fuel, or, you know, if it's electric vehicle, then the electrons run along the uh, relay and, and power the dynamos of the motors, making it possible for the vehicle to move forward. Whereas with behavior, when we're talking about living organisms, it can be <clears throat> anything as complex as a opera singing uh-huh. um, with an orchestra playing. That's all behavior. Or it could be anything as simple as a cell. Well, and I say this simple within the term tongue in cheek, but simple more along the lines of like basic as a cell um emitting a, a chemical to signal to the rest of the, the biological system that the body is feeling hunger. I think that's really interesting because um, one is that when you, when we, you know, we are talking, we, in, in this age, we are talking about AI and uh, robots. And, uh, you know, if, if the robot has a, consciousness or or is it ever gonna have a consciousness and you know there's a a lot of debate about that and you know i'm making a video about consciousness uh for my youtube too and i'm watching a lot of videos where people are talking about it and one of the things that they say is that we you know we are we as a society has not reached the point where 
uh, robot or some kind of a machine in a factory or anything like that that can uh, vary response in relation to uh, what's given in the present moment. So right, let's say if you're talking about the robot in a factory, mm-hmm. if you move a, a thing that for like a one or two millimeters from where it's supposed to be, the robot cannot modify themselves to go to that one or two millimeter. So, so yeah. you know, that variability is still not there at all. So, you know, we, it's really a long way for, for an AI and all that kind of things to catch up with any simple living organism. So I, ha- I have been hearing some research, and this is all going off of memory, um, mind you, but I have been hearing some research about uh, AI where basically uh, the AI is learning how to respond to different stimuli mm-hmm. um, and that sort of thing. So it may be that sometime in the near future or even slightly distant future, I guess, we might have to redefine what behavior is because... Um, I am seeing that some, some yeah, research, I think yeah. Boston Dynamics is a, is a company that's experimenting with AI and robots. Um, you know, what's I've interesting some... about it is that they are actually learning from uh, studies in operant and Pavlovian conditionings to, mm-hmm. to kind of like a mimic how organisms learn and change behavior, and they're applying it to... Um, uh robotics which is called reinforcement uh learning i think it's called reinforcement learning okay so yeah if you're you know it's gonna come in near future but if you're interested in that type of stuff yeah we you know operant them operant conditioning is there so (laughs) it's really cool (laughs) that is really cool and uh just kind of a thought to add to this this discussion because i i it's a thought that keeps on occurring back to me over and over again as I study and I, I learn more about this approach. Um, a lot of times we there's a lot of um, terms uh, from other psychological branches that are, are commonly used in our in our zeitgeist uh, in, in in our in our common terminology things like ego and id things like that. Um, which are which are very fascinating because they're uh, they come from somebody who is tr- and this is something that I really loved about B.F. Skinner by the way is every time I've read something where B.F. Skinner has written about um, Sigmund Freud and those who followed him he never talks trash on them yeah he always praises them mm-hmm. it's really fascinating because he he's saying these people are trying to figure out and understand. And I honor that mm-hmm. my paraphrase of what he's saying. So very, very intriguing. And I, and I, and I love that about, about BS Skinner and the works that I've read of him so far, but, and he may, maybe he has talked trash in other books and, and, and writings and stuff, but I'm not going to, I'm going to base off of my experience with this, um, what I've learned. But what, uh, what I've noticed is that, um, a lot of these ideas, these concepts are based off trying to explain what's being observed within a, an idea that somebody came up with and trying to, in, in terms of um, logical 
logic and logical fallacies, uh, Texas shooter or cherry pick the data to fit within that role. And I think some of your videos where you talk about personality science that you, you mentioned it something along those lines as well mm-hmm. um, of just like, okay, somebody came up with a concept first and then they tried to fit the data within the concept. Right. Um, and the thing that I love about behavior analysis is that instead of trying to fit the data within the concept, we first observe the data and we, we try to see different things. So um, if we were to, if behavior analysis were to, and maybe somebody is doing this, I don't know, um, try to understand personality from the perspective of operants. Um, instead of starting from, uh, instead of trying to build a building with finished walls, yeah, we start with lumber and drywall and nails and the, the basic foundational stuff. And that's, that's kind of where I'm seeing the difference between operant um, well, not operant behaviorism, um, mm-hmm. as opposed to other branches of psychology is instead of saying, oh, this is a wall. Let's try to make everything match this wall. Yeah. So we say, okay, well, what are the basic building blocks of the wall? What makes the wall, the wall? Like, yeah. is it a brick wall? Is it a wood wall? Is it a, an Adobe wall? You know, what are, what are the components? So that way we can replicate this over and over with some consistency to be able to identify why. Yeah. Um, it's behaving the way it's behaving. And then we can start looking into the how and the, the what ifs and all these different things. And by taking that approach, it's um, well, it's, it's just a lot more specific and goes deep into um, understanding. And then that in turn makes it possible for us to address problems that we're facing and also just as importantly, if not more importantly, it helps people to achieve their full potential. Exactly. I totally agree with you. All right. Well, um, do you have any final thoughts on stimulus and stimulus class before we uh, finish up the show? I think we covered pretty much um, everything that that uh, that I can think of. <laughs> So, okay. yeah. Well, um, folks, if you want to support the show, it, um, please uh, visit patreon.com slash obehave. Uh, that's O-H, uh, behave. Um, you can also support the show through contributions on anchor.fm slash obehave. And if you'd like to know more about the Obehave podcast, you can go to obehavepodcast.com. Um, thank you very much for joining us today, show. It's been a it's been a real pleasure, and I look forward to having you back to talk about respondent and operant conditioning. Thank you.